This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Andrew Refeld, the president of Hebrew Union College, the Reform Rabbinical Seminary that has ordained most of the Reform rabbis in the world, including my wife. Indeed, HUC is surely the world's leading creator of rabbis' husbands. Dr. Refeld is the rare leader with both an academic and a communal background, having served as a tenured professor of political science and as the leader of the Jewish Federation of St. Louis and now the leader of Hebrew Union College. Dr. Refeld, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Pleasure to be here, Mark. Yeah, I think we've been producing rabbis' husbands. Uh, I don't want to say since when, because I'm not exactly sure when the first rabbi that was married actually came, but for a while. Certainly the first, and as certainly the greatest producer of rabbis' husbands, no, no doubt. No one else could lay claim to that. And, and I would say, and rabbis' partners more generally, just to non-gender that, but rabbis' husbands, rabbis' partners, rabbis' wives. That's right. And rabbis. And rabbis. Your chosen passage is, is so interesting. So first, I'll just read it, and then um, if you could explain kind of what's happening in that passage and why it's so meaningful to you. So it's Judges 17.6 or 21.25, and they both say, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did as he pleased. This is a passage that comes at the end of the book of Judges, a book that is notable by the first exercise of political power by the Jewish people that quickly goes from the hopeful invasion and conquering of the land of Israel by Joshua. Well, I mean, that's Joshua, but the end of Joshua is how the book of Judges begins that just completely deteriorates till you get to the end of Judges and with the horrible scene first of Samson, and then at the very end of the book with, uh, with the civil war that just about annihilates the Benjaminites. And it annihilates the Benjaminites uh, with an act of vengeance that came from a brutal act of a gang rape that occurs uh, of a concubine that, that's going home and uh, of, a, of a husband that retrieves his concubine who fled from his house. I mean, it's just terrible. It's the worst kind of uh, chaos, a civil war of disorder. And it's in those two contexts that the, the first, the statement is made that in those days where there is no king, everyone that does what they see fit in their own eyes or does what they please, depending on how you translate it. In between those two endings, really terrible stories of Samson and the Benjaminites, uh, the slaughter, the, the gang rape and the slaughter. And then at the very end of the book, leading into Samuel, which of course you get the assertion of the divine creation of a king, not the divine king, importantly, but rather God's acquiescence in a monarch. And so that's what's happening. And it's just the commentary that where there is no king and observation, where there's no centralized ruler, everyone does what they please. Or as I said, everyone does what in their own eyes uh, seems right in their own eyes or seems correct, straight. And it's such an important passage you chose because the idea that that expresses really happens throughout the Bible, starting in Genesis 6-2, where it says that the sons of the nobles saw the daughters of man when they were beautifying themselves, and they took for themselves wives from whomever they chose. And that, and that immediately precedes God deciding to execute the flood. 
So when there's no governing idea, when there's no moral structure to which everyone subscribes, people do whatever they choose, as you quote from judges, they marry whomever they choose is in Genesis and destruction follows. Well, listen, the marriage, whoever they choose, it has been a feature of the Jewish people since certainly Abraham. And, you know, they choose, you want to choose well. But I, I want to separate the moral rule of the king from the simple rule of the king. That is, the observation is not that when you have a just ruler, things go to hell. It is when you don't have a king, there is chaos. And that's important because who is the ruler here, right? The, the governing idea was the reason we don't have a king, and this is earlier in the book of Judges, it's rejected. We don't have a king because God is the only king that is capable of ruling. And that's the reason that we that a king is, is turned down uh, initially. And so what this is actually asking, a different way to ask it, is not only where there is no king, disorder will reign, but where disorder reigns, it's evidence in the first place that God's not present, if that's your view of the theology, or that there is no king present, right? That where everyone does as they please, there is no king, which is, you know, if, if you think in light of just what's happening today as a reference point, where there's chaos, where there's a- anarchy, there is, no, there is no leadership. There's no ruler in place, if you will. Right. That, that, that when there's no leader in place, the Bible tells us time and again, particularly in the passage that you chose, the result is not some alternative form of order. It's disorder, which accrues to the detriment of everyone around and everyone involved. That's right. And we see the same idea that you, that you uh, surfaced referenced. It's in, it's in Proverbs 14:12, which says, uh, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its ends are the way of death. Hmm. Proverbs 21, 2. Every man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord ponders the heart. So there's this constant theme, and these are just two examples out of many, of course, but there's this constant theme that people are very good at convincing themselves at whatever they want and, that, uh, and, and at rationalizing whatever it takes to achieve a desired outcome and doing what they please. So we're very good at convincing ourselves to do what we want in order so that we may do what we please. And the, the verse that you surface shows that there needs to be a king, whether it's a political king, a moral king, or some other kind of king. Of course, in this, in Judges, it's a political king. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're pressing on whether or not, uh, on whether this is an issue of moral relativism, or right. whether or not this is an issue of something, something different. It is the failure of reason, the failure to see what is, what is right. I'm, I'm, I'm distracted by the, the verse that you just gave, because God sees in your heart. So the difference between rationalization and your motivations, if you will, Frankly, I'm much more interested in the political side, Mark, uh, about this, about you know, why do we think that a king, that the absence of a king leads to chaos? And to me, the passage is talking about the, the importance of centralized leadership, the importance of it to solve simple coordination problems. Forget about all the moral irregularities. If you have people not knowing, do you, do you drive on the left or the right side of the road? You have death. You need somebody to coordinate, and a king provides that. It brings stability just by setting clear expectations of what the law is, even if it's an unjust law. So that's why, you know, yeah, it doesn't have to be just. Just having a centralized ruler brings stability because you can calculate and you can decide, well, is it worth the penalty? Is it uh, what's going to happen if I, if I violate these laws? So kings must be minimally rational for them to count as kings. You can't have a totally, you know, irrational ruler, but I'm, I'm not sure that you need a just ruler 
to fit the bill to, to answer the issue of chaos. Of course, justice is what's required. You have this earlier in Deuteronomy, the law of the kings, that sets out a clear set of restrictions on what, what the king will do, including you know, having the Torah by the king's side while, while the king is ruling. Clearly, that's right, that you don't need a just ruler in order to have order. In fact, unjust rulers sometimes are very good at imposing order. Look at Saddam Hussein. I mean, it's a great example of, is the world better off? Is Iraq better off? Somebody that was clearly an unjust ruler, but he's predictable. He's reliable. You can plan a life, even a good life, around the understanding what motivates the king. And in the absence of that, you just have a society that deteriorates into chaos. So I think that the wisdom here is, to me, less around the, the difficulty of individuals choosing well and knowing what is just, and less about the relativeness of morality, which I don't think is actually found in Torah, but more about the stability that clear and decisive leadership brings, even, even in the case when it's not perfectly just, because after all, the king is replacing, if you will, the ideal of God being you're going to impose a king, and ultimately that is something that, that even God acquiesces to uh, later in the book of Samuel. Yes, and the book of Samuel raises this, the very same question, where um, the question is, God saying, you can have a king if you want. Right. So the question is then, why is there chaos in the absence of strong centralized political leadership? So I, again, you just go back to this uh, simple coordination problems. You have problems with uh, disputes. Uh, so uh, the, the problem with the commons is the best example. You have a, a fish that, you know, if I take five fish out, we can all live and we can all share the commons. Fish will reproduce, but maybe I want a six fish. And if there's not some penalty for me taking out for overfishing the pond, each of us individually has individualized incentives to overfish. And individually, it won't hurt the pond. Collectively, it does. So a, a ruler coordinates that and keeps problems from happening. It keeps chaos. That, that's a very good example. So even in that case, even if there were five people fishing, in order for that to work in anything but the very short term, they would need to appoint a sixth person to be the governor of the five. I mean, how long would it take before they decide they needed a governor? Prob I'm well, the, the, their first impulse is likely that they're going to be the governor and that they, they'd be better off to kill the guy next door when he's sleeping, take their fish and double fish the next day anyway. That's certainly a Habesian uh, view. Thomas Hobbes had the view of, of the world like that, which, quite frankly, just seems uh, reflective within the book of Judges and within the, the history of the Jewish people, that uh, a reinforcement of that. Our greatest glory was achieved under the, uh, under the Solomonic times of King Solomon, who not only avoided the chaos, but did so in a way that expanded the rule and the reach of the Jewish people uh, further than it ever had before or since in terms of land, in terms of uh, expanse, all the way up to, uh, I think it's up to Damascus. And interestingly, the other th achievement that a centralized political leader can do, it's not only a matter of uh, establishing order, but it's giving people freedom. So let's take the state of Israel today. Well, Israel couldn't be a state without the IDF and the strong central government governing the IDF and all the accoutrements of nationhood. But the Jewish people are able to blossom in the freedom that statehood enables because there's a centralized political authority. Without that, there would be no means to do anything productive to approach the state where of uh, being a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In order to achieve that, you need that centralized political authority. So it seems like it's not just defense, it's also offense. A hundred percent. You couldn't have said it better. I think that the reliance of the Jewish community on the defensive justification for the state of Israel, 
although it's true, I buy it, I accept it, and I think it's important, actually undermines the case for it. That is, it, it undersells the case for Israel, because the second piece is what you said. It's the positive. It's the ability to allow the Jewish people to flourish as a people, as a culture, as a religion, that centralized political authority uh, gives them in a way that creates the freedom to do that. But there's a third piece to it, too. It's not only the justification for Israel, it's not only a defensive one to protect the Jews, not only the positive one, as you say, to for Jewish flourishing, but also the third one to be done in a way that's consistent with the laws of justice, with God's law of justice, human rights for all. And if any one of those three is violated, you lose the justification for the state of Israel, the sense of their people, flourishing their people, and in a manner that achieves the aims of justice. And the, the other piece to this, Mark, that, that the passage uh, plays on is the relationship between the nature of the king, the quality, the character of the rule, and the character of the citizens. That is, why does a king uh, why does the absence of a king? Because you don't have a character that provides a model for citizenry. You see this developed as a political ideal, most famously in Plato's Republic, where the ruler becomes a reflection of the people and that, that install the ruler. And then the ruler's character then feeds back on the people. And this is how in Plato's idea of regime analysis, how the greatest regimes can decay and fall apart because you get somebody that isn't an ideal ruler and then the people start to lower themselves. Yeah, that's really the eternal question, which is asked basically all the time in American politics. How important is the character of the president? In a democracy, I think the character of a leader is perhaps most important because the people are the direct rulers, if you will, and that the, the person that that the people that are linked to the ruler. And when the ruler's character is decayed, the people themselves take that as a lead and see and justify any manner of behavior. You know, I remember during the Clinton scandal, the definition of sex that came out, you know, well, the, there was a huge shifting of, of views about that, the, uh, the outrage around that. Political leadership has tremendous role modeling effects. And I think that if... Uh, if we don't track that, we're not fully understanding the dynamic of leadership and the people that is led. But that's such an interesting question. Um, do you think, now going back to the, the 90s, do you think that people thought that they could do what Bill Clinton did with Monica Lewinsky because he was the president, he did it, and he kind of got away with it, kind of didn't get away with it because he's, his reputation suffered to this day, but he stayed in office? Well, th this was so odd to me, I have to tell you. To see people argue for Clinton in a way that they would never argue for any other CEO, and this is the CEO of our country. So you could imagine that you or, or somebody else that leads an organization uh, tells, tells his or her board, hey, I've had an inappropriate affair, not just with a consensual adult, but with actually somebody that's in a sense employed, right, as an intern. And the question would not be, is should the person be impeached or not? The question would be, do you resign at 8 in the morning or at 4 p.m.? I mean, this is, it's, not even, it's not even interesting, even back then, today even more so. And yet we create, to your point about the rationalization and the, the, the quote from Psalms, we create all kinds of rationalizations to produce the outcomes that we want. And this is why, I, you know, just to look at the parallelism, if you thought that Clinton's actions were demanding that he not hold power, were evidence that he did not have the character, 
then you need to apply that standard to all of our presidents. Presidents that do that and act that way should not hold the office. And if you can't do that, then your justification for for uh, impeaching Clinton is just self-interested. Similarly, if there's somebody, just say hypothetically in office today, whose character you find reprehensible and is showing that that person that he does not uh, ought not to hold office, you need to go back and make sure either you were aligned that neither should Clinton or, you know, admit, well, I was mistaken. Actually, Clinton should have, did not have the character in hold office. And again, that is if you use character as the judgment of office. And I think it really shows the inescapability of philosophy, because if one wants to be consistent on this, then one has to decide one's answer to the question. And I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. There are good arguments on both sides. How important is the character of the leader to the populace? Yeah. If the philosophy is inescapable, you, one has to come to a, an answer to that question for oneself. And you could change your answer and all that. But you have to come to that answer, which is not obvious, and then apply it. Correct. Regardless of who the president is. That's right. But again, this is a, this is an approach to understanding politics as regime, that it is a it isn't simply about the leaders in office. It isn't simply about institution, although both of that matter. It's the interaction between those things and the character of the moral character of the people within the nation itself. It, it resonates. And, and I think it is illustrated by the by the example in the book of Judges as well. Now, speaking of leadership, you're one of the great leaders of reform Judaism right now. What do you envision the future of Reform Judaism? No one can predict 50 years. So I'm not even going to ask. But let's say in the next 20 years. I think you're seeing a real resurgence of reform. I mean, you have in the last, in the last 20 years where it became the, the dominant denomination that people identify with. But the, the overwhelming trend that had been coming and Pew's going to be coming out soon. So I don't know what the new data shows yet. I haven't seen that. But the, the tendency was to move away from denominationalism. So I think, Mark, we have to separate out Reform Judaism from a set of institutions in the past to an ideology. And here I have some concern, both some hope and concerns. If you look at the ideology of Reform Judaism, I would say that many people that call themselves conservative and orthodox are actually Reform Jews in the sense of that they practice conservative practice, they practice orthopractice in terms of following, but they do so in a way that accepts the fundamentals of Reform Judaism. Fundamentals that say, we're going to approach Jewish life scientifically. Sinai did not happen. Why do we say that? Because there's no evidence that it happened. It's a myth that structures meaning and purpose in our lives. Number two, the authority for moral and religious belief stems in each of us individually, not in a religious figure who we can nevertheless rely on for advice, counsel, education, but we have to take responsibility. And finally, that we're engaging in the particularism of Judaism, not because God told us at Sinai, not because a rabbi has established laws, but because we recognize that investing in a particular community, a particular set of ideals, a particular way of life is the best way of actually achieving universal goals of the good, the right, and the just. And if you accept those, in my view, you've accepted Reform Judaism. The challenge to Reform Judaism then, because I think a lot of conservative and even people that call themselves Orthodox accept that, the challenge to Reform Judaism is I'm not sure many Reform Jews accept that or even struggle with that idea. That is, the self-concept of the Reform Jew is much more uh, defined by what I don't do. Well, I don't keep kosher. Well, I don't go to services. Uh, I don't keep Shabbat. 
or I do certain practices without a recognition of where they come from Jewishly. So for example, a very important initiative around audacious hospitality that my friend and colleague, Rabbi Rick Jacobs, has really made as a cornerstone of the URJ is critically important. It's morally required to welcome our places, particularly in the turn that it's now taken to diversity, equity, and inclusion. But those are consequences of a certain approach to Judaism. They don't define the Judaism itself, if you will. Audacious hospitality is the way that we open up our tent flaps. The question that I'm asking is what's inside of the tent? What are we requiring of people? And that, I think, in many Reformed Jewish communities, we struggle with. We've lost the ability to talk about liberal theology in a way that I think we need to get back to. Well, that's right. And I know Rabbi Yitz Greenberg said, uh, I don't care which denomination you're in so long as you're ashamed of it. And there you go. Yeah. <laughs> We're producing shameful rabbis. No, that's not a good. But it's just a beautiful idea that we should all be so self-critical. It's so easy to be critical of others, but the, the real virtue and the real change happens when we're self-critical. So in the spirit of Yitz Greenberg, if you could say you're ashamed of two things in Reform Judaism, and you could change them because you probably can, you're probably in the position to change them. What are those two things that you would change, say, 10 years into your tenure, 15 years into your tenure, where you would say, I've been serving a year now, here are two things I'm ashamed of, and I'm not going to be ashamed of them in 10 years because they're going to have changed. First of all, I reject the idea of, of having to tell you what I'm ashamed of, of the movement that I'm very proud of. So let me talk about the opportunities we have for growth. Number one, we have the opportunity to invest in our congregations, our leadership, our rabbis, a firmer idea of what differentiates Reform Judaism as a post-enlightenment approach to religious life that accepts science, that accepts the primacy of reason and moral autonomy, and yet embraces Judaism even given those two conditions. And I think that we have a great opportunity to strengthen that. Number two, we have an opportunity because of the practical innovations that have, that have defined our movement, because of the post-enlightenment shift that we brought about, to be innovators at, at, at the most important time in this world today. We are seeing transformations, not just because of COVID, but because of technology, that our movement and that our leaders are best suited to grow into, to develop, and to respond to. You're seeing just the beginning of that now, and that's just going to continue. Uh, and I think the opportunity for us is to get ahead of that. And that's what I'm most proud of in the future, of thinking about how do we take advantage of this we need to reform ourselves. You know, HUC has been around since 1875, and we've really grown by just growing and growing and growing and doing things the same way over and over and over again. We're in a different era. We need to do things differently in a way that is, is actually going to, to continue the transformative work that we have done uh, for 150 years up until 146 years up until now. Well, thank you for such an enlightening discussion of this magnificent passage and for surfacing it. Now, the concluding question on the rabbi's husband always goes from one text, the sacred text of the Bible, to another text, which is Andre Malraux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he says on the first page, he says, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, I've learned two things. One, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So, Andrew, in all your years as an academic leader and as a communal leader in several different spheres now, what are two things that you've learned about humankind? I would say, number one, that people respond 
much more to hope, to inspiration, to the potential. The question that you asked me, what I'm ashamed about, to me, the question is, what opportunities do we have for growth in the future? And I think that framing things in a positive, aspirational way is not only more inspiring and motivating, it actually, for those reasons, gets the results in a cognitive way, reshape behavior. And number two, related to that, no matter how much of a jerk, no matter how problematic, no matter how difficult people are, there's always a spark of divinity, of humanity, of human divinity, of divine humanness. That sounds way too non-Jewish. I don't mean it that way. I just mean that the spark of, of the divine in all of us. Well, no, that's very Jewish. It's, 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 there's, uh, everyone's created in the image of God. For sure, but Selim Elohim, but just the way that I was saying, human and divine, but, and to, to search for even in the most vile person that you can think of, to recognize that there is a spark of humanity. Unfortunately, most of us don't deal with the most vile human beings, but we deal with challenging people all the time. And to be able to say to yourself, what about this person reminds me of, of the good, the right, the just, the beautiful, the true, and focus on that is to me a, a way of, of navigating in communal life uh, a really often difficult set of personalities. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for such an enlightening and interesting conversation and for doing so much great work at HUC and creating more rabbi's husband among so much else. And thank you for, for sticking to being a rabbi's husband. And by the way, I do, you know, we haven't said it, but the haircut is what really makes the man. Is That's like, right. But that'll mean nothing to people on the podcast, correct? No, but you can encourage that rabbi's husbands uh, around the world. There you go.